zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Monster Club, released May 27th, 1981. It was written by Edward and Valerie Abraham, based on a novel by R. Chetwynd Hayes, directed by Roy Ward Baker, and released by ITC, Incorporated Television Company. It's a movie. Don't look at me like that, Jess. It's a movie. Hey, I'm not going to yell at you for making me watch this one. Yeah. <laughs> the role of Chetwynd Hayes was originally offered to Christopher Lee, who turned it down based on the title alone. Peter Cushing was also offered a part. Not clear which one, but I would guess the Vincent Price role. I could totally see Christopher Lee doing this movie, though. He'd have been great, yeah. <laughs> we start with a high-angle shot on the corner of a street and a store called George Engel and Son. A couple approach the windows to check out the merchandise. In the shop window, we can see bizarre monster masks and a collection of horror novels written by R. Chetwynd Hayes. Among the titles we can read on screen are The Partaker, a novel of fantasy, Terror by Night, Tales of Horror from Beyond the Grave, and The Cradle Demon, and other stories of fantasy and horror. The panning camera comes to rest on a black-and-white photograph of the author, who in this film is being played by John Carradine, the opening titles say that this comes from a novel by R. Chetwynd Hayes, but I believe he is a fabrication of the film. Oh, no, he's not. He's a real person. <laughs> After the first couple disappear into the night, an older man walks up to the windows, and we can see in the reflection that this is Chetwynd Hayes himself. He seems pleased by the window display, and as he turns to move through a tunnel walkway, he is suddenly grabbed by an old man played by Vincent Price, who claims to be starving. I'm famished. I've had for. Weeks. Chetwynd Hayes offers whatever he can to help, and we reveal here that Price's character is a vampire, and he lunges forward to sink his teeth into Chetwynd Hayes's neck. The scene dips to black, but when it comes back up, Price is collecting Chetwynd Hayes' dropped belongings to return to him when he notices the ID in his wallet and he recognizes the author's name. He introduces himself as Aramis, a vampire. Oh, but of course you know that. I say, what happened to your fangs? Oh, they're retractable when not in use. Aramis tells him not to worry that he didn't bite deep enough to turn him. He also compliments his blood as having come from a noble source, making it more delicious. He admits to Chetwynd Hayes that he is a fan of the man's books. You are my favorite author. I'm glad you like my blood, uh, my books, but I must be on my way. Oh no, I can't hear of such a thing. Aramis, instead, urges Chetwynd Hayes to join him for a special evening to repay him for the delicious noble blood. When Chetwynd Hayes tries to wave him off, Aramis entices him with the promise of material for future books. I will take you to a place where my friends foregather. There are vampires, werewolves, ghouls, every kind of monster you could ever imagine, and some far beyond the imagining of mere mortals. Guys, you're never going to believe what this place is called. It's called the... Uh... Monster Club. <laughs> That's the name of the movie. Oh my god. We cut right to the dance floor at the Monster Club, 
And the Halloween store quality of the masks on these characters is actually kind of disappointing. Yeah. Disappointing or endearing? (laughs) Maybe a mix. (laughs) I I felt like they just shot this at a spirit Halloween store. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, like, at first I wasn't sure. I'm like, if that was like serious or not, like I was yeah. like, oh, are these okay. are these real monsters that are wearing rubber masks as a joke? Well, or like I would, I thought that we were gonna do like a secondary reveal, like this was actually a bunch of humans like pretending to be monsters, and then we were gonna go into like the lower, the real monster, the, the club. Real yeah. monster club. But no, 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 these are them, and it just, I, I don't know, I feel like the the childlike essence of whoever did the makeup and masks for this movie like i just love this nine-year-old boy's aesthetic yeah (laughs) because like it's just so cheesy i love it yeah they're just huge (laughs) rubber masks but it's not supposed to look like a mask it's really supposed to be that these are the monsters Mm -hmm. that we have in the club like you can see through the eye holes yeah the the makeup like they didn't do makeup around the eyes to match the mask colors also the rest of them are completely human except for the heads yeah most of them yeah apparently they were commissioned very last minute <laughs> these masks they were commissioned yes. i really legit thought they just went to a halloween store and just no picked them up. somebody <laughs> made them but they made them in a rush they're dancing to a song called monsters rule as performed by the viewers live on stage a woman in pale face makeup with fangs rotates out of the wall to collect their coats and a lupine gentleman named Wolfgang leads them to Aramis's regular table. Again, like all the humanoid-esque characters, like anybody who's not in a giant rubber mask, like their aesthetic is just like light face paint with dark eyeshadow, like yeah. causing their, their, their eye sockets to recess. And that is like the grand total of all the makeup in this movie. <laughs> Once they've been seated, Aramis orders his usual, but their type B is no good tonight, so he settles for type O. The waiter suggests tomato juice for Chetwind Hayes to avoid drawing any unwanted attention. Aramis tries to explain why he needed his blood if they have a restaurant that serves it. He claims that it must be drank from the source to provide nourishment, but horror films and TV shows are making it harder to catch people off guard. Every layperson seems to know a vampire's every weakness. People are so well-educated these days. It's all those horror films and television. Everybody knows about garlic and steaks through the heart. Yes, we all have our cross to bear. I'd rather you didn't use that word. He notices some sort of family tree on the wall and asks Aramis to explain. On the top of the chart are vampires, werewolves, and ghouls, which I guess are the same as zombies, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think ghouls have a little bit more intelligence. Maybe. Um, like, uh, in some vampire lore, a vampire can make a human into a ghoul. Oh, okay. Um, and they they, I, but I believe the mo of a ghoul requires where vampire sucks the blood of ghoul eats the flesh. Right. Moving down the chart, we get crossbreeds and crossbreeds of crossbreeds. Now, a vampire and a werewolf would produce a weir-vamp. But a werewolf and a ghoul would produce a weir-goo. But a vampire and a ghoul would produce a vam-goo. A weir-goo and a weir-vamp would produce a shaddy. Now, a weir-goo and a vam-goo would produce a maddy. But a weir-vamp and a vam-goo would produce a ratty. Now... If a shaddy were to mate with a ratty or a maddy, the results would be a muck. A muck? Frankly, that's just the polite name for a mongrel. (laughs) 
As a final note, Aramis mentions the existence of Shad Mox, the offspring of a mock with any other hybrid on the chart. Apparently, they can emit a powerful whistle. Of course, I'm sitting here Googling. I'm like, does any of this exist no. outside of this movie? For and sure, no. Yeah, it's definitely all of these things are, are isolated to yeah. this. <laughs> it's just so that Vincent Price has some funny things to say. Which they are. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Aramis uses the Shadmox whistle as a segue to the first of our three stories in this anthology film. I guess you could consider four stories if you count this story that we're already in with the author meeting a vampire. Right. Aramis claims to have heard of a man who saw the results of a Shadmox whistle. We cut to the man in question wearing a straitjacket in a mental hospital as experts observe him through a one-way mirror and wonder aloud what might have happened to him. We cut backward in time a bit to the same man dropping sugar in his morning tea while he reads the paper, looking for potential get-rich-quick schemes. The man finds a want ad looking for a secretary to help catalog a collection of possessions. He suggests his girlfriend apply for the job to look at the man's collection. He dangles a potential marriage as a carrot to talk her into applying. We cut to her arriving at the property and walking past several expensive-looking art pieces on the way to knocking the door of the massive estate. In the homeowner's POV, we pass more artifacts inside on the way to the door. When an arm opens the door, she introduces herself as applicant Angela Jones, and the man, Raven, invites her in. He keeps his face obscured in shadow as he talks her through the requirements of the job, cataloging all his possessions and warning her that most people quit very quickly. He finally reveals his face as explanation, and she runs out the door. Back at her apartment, she tells her boyfriend that it will not work because the guy, while admittedly rich, is too ugly. It, it kind of feels like an exaggeration to just be this upset about how ugly he is. Yeah, now, it's not that much. He's, he's, I would say, odd looking a little yeah. bit. Like, he has some unusual features to him. But, but even if he looked like the elephant man here, it wouldn't have warranted turning around and running and away. screaming and running away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, like, he has that same kind of unusual aesthetic as a lot of the other humans, human-esque characters in the yeah. Monster Club, where it's just like he's got some light skin and some dark eyeshadow on, and then he's just... And his hair is parted looking. down the middle. That's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's not ugly. Yeah. <laughs> she shouldn't have told her boyfriend that the guy had money, but that she wasn't going to go back because that's the only reason that he bothers to talk her back into it. Yeah. But when she gets back to the property, Raven lets her right back into the house, and she doesn't so much as apologize for her earlier escape. She complains about the state of his place, and he blames his face for scaring away any potential cleaning staff. He can't even leave the house because he's terrified of civilization. Well, there's all the noise, then. The traffic. I might... Might He walks away. Later we see him feeding pigeons in the yard, and nearby a fat cat watches from the top of a wall. Angela shows up and scares away the birds, but Raven promises that the birds will accept her as a friend as well. Later, inside the house, Raven tells Angela that he's fascinated by things of the undead. He tells her that he used to wear a mask to get around in public, but people just wanted to see underneath it all the time. She sits down at a small desk to begin cataloging his possessions. We see her returning from a walk around his property, and she's presented with a bouquet of flowers. Inside, the house is full of them. You should always be surrounded with flowers. She urges him to play with his birds. Back at her apartment, Angela's boyfriend wants to know why she's taking so long, and she can't put it into words. You in love with him or something? No. He terrifies me. 
We cut back to another bird feeding session, and this time the cat makes its move, killing one of Raven's beloved winged friends. He cradles the lifeless bird before turning his attention on the murderous cat at whom he directs a heinous whistle that startles Angela at her desk in the house. She rushes toward him to find what happened, and he runs past her on her way outside. In the yard, she finds a furry puddle in the shape of a cat gently smoldering. So I guess you like not just hearing this because she obviously hears this, right? From but it has to be directed at you, I think. Okay, yeah, it wasn't super clear on the rules here. Angela's boyfriend has inspected an example of Raven's collection and complains that it's not enough to warrant the risk. It's all very traceable, so they'd have to melt it down to sell, and it would be mostly worthless because this stuff is like historical artifacts. Mm-hmm. You're paying for a recognizable artifact. We learn that Raven's been hiding in his room for days, giving Angela time alone in the home. Her boyfriend suggests keeping an eye out for the safe, where Raven no doubt hides the money that he uses to pay for these trinkets. We cut right to Raven opening the safe from behind a false bookshelf, and he pulls out three fat rolls of cash before he clicks it closed. He gives the money to a man at the door in exchange for a package, and he shows Angela his new purchase. A golden ring, the prized possession of an ancient royal. It used to belong to Princess Sahoya. She was said to be the most beautiful woman of her day. That was some 3,000 years ago. Sahoya must have had your coloring. It matches your eyes, your skin. Beautiful. She follows him into the study as he opens the safe to stash the ring away. Seeing the money inside, Angela advises him to keep his money in a bank but he insists that it's all safer here. He then asks her to marry him, and she's speechless. We cut right to her in bed with the boyfriend crying. She can't bear to put him through such cruel pain. I want to see the part in between there, though. I'm like, yeah. how what did we... she respond? Yeah, like, how did we get out of that moment? <laughs> did she just turn around and run out of the house again? Yeah. Well, and and who is she crying over? Is she crying over? She's, she's crying about the the guy that she feels bad for, the the rich person. Okay. Because she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to marry him, or break his heart, or break his heart. Yeah. Back at the house, it seems she has accepted his offer and asked for the ring. Oh, you've made me so very, very happy. Of course, you may have the ring. It's only fitting it should adorn a, a living hand after so many centuries. And such a, a beautiful hand. She memorizes the safe combination as he opens it. He confesses to her that he is a shad mock and informs her that he must not, under any circumstances, be allowed to whistle. He places Sahoya's ring on her hand and promises that everyone from his family at their wedding will wear masks to protect her from the shock of seeing them. We cut right to the night of the wedding. Raven gives her a mask to wear to the party, and she's introduced to the extended family. She dances with presumably a werewolf based on the fur fluffing out in all directions around her mask. As a Shadmok, it makes sense that he has relatives from all categories of monster. She manages to sneak away to the safe between the songs, but Raven quickly notices she's missing. He finds her pocketing the contents of the safe and is so devastated by the betrayal that he yanks up his mask. He tells her he doesn't care about the money and that she could still love him. I could never love you. Raven can't stop himself from whistling with his rage, and the sound of the whistle stops the party's musicians mid-song. 
We cut back to Angela's apartment, where she wanders into the room covered with a cloak. Her boyfriend asks if she scored the ring, and when she removes the cloak and turns to face him, she reveals a burnt and melty smear of skin where a face should be. She recites Raven's last line to her boyfriend. You could still love me. You could still love me. As he backs away in horror. We cut back to Raven crying on the floor of the ballroom amidst his wedding guests. We dissolve back to the monster club, and Aramis is saying there's nothing sadder than an agonized monster. So, okay, so the guy at the very beginning of this story... Was the boyfriend. Is the boyfriend. He was so shocked by what he saw that he went to an asylum. Oh, that he went insane. Because I thought, like, the implication when they cut to that shot originally was... That's the that's the devastation of the whistle. But then we learned that, no, it turns you into a melty pile right. of goo. Yeah. But so it just made him crazy to see her like that. Right. But did she die? Like No, she's fine. But like. So is that cat. <laughs> well, but no, like, like, did she melt completely or is it just her face that's melted? She looked pretty far gone. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't think she's dead, but I think she's she's permanently disfigured. Right. And she's going to live the rest of her life like that. Because but then I was wondering, like. Like, when they found this guy, where did she go? Yeah. I like, don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I thought she would die. Like, she's like Raiders of the Lost Ark melty by the l- l- end of that. On stage in the club now, B.A. Robertson is launching into Aramis's favorite song. They're playing my song. It's my favorite, too, by a long shot. I'm just a sucker for your love. I, I don't. I'm just a sucker for your love. I don't um, like the slurpy sounds that they did at the beginning of the you song. You don't? Oh, no. I love it. It's Everything about this is great. When I kiss in a bundle hand, I make a love to a colander. I said, oh, I'm just a sucker boy. The entire three-minute song is performed in a single shot, zooming in and out spastically, but it works really well because it's like going in and out with the beat of the song. Aramis and Chetwind Hayes receive their drink orders as the club secretary introduces tonight's guest of honor, the great vampire film producer, Linton Busatsky. Vampire film producer? Well, aren't they all? Linton is here to present a film based on his own childhood, but based on a modern setting, which Aramis points out is code for lower budget. Lintum talks about his nocturnal father and his isolated childhood. The film is projected over Lintum for a while, until a cut where the story moves fully into the film. His mother dresses him for school and reminds him not to speak to strangers. He looks morose as he walks alone to school. That night, his father awakens and climbs the basement steps up into the house. The boy and his father play with toys until mother reminds father that he's about to miss his train and he hurries out. Lintum tries to guess at his father's job while his mother dresses him up like a stereotypical vampire, but the kid's not picking it up. Before he leaves, he warns his son about the bee squad. Beware of men carrying violin cases. Mother says they needn't trouble Lintum with these thoughts, and they walk him to the door. As he crosses the front garden, father turns to wave at Lintum in the upstairs window. At school, the kids are taking turns jumping over a big puddle, and a few bullies tease Lintum about not participating. Bet he can't do that. Of course he can't. And then he can't. <laughs> yeah. When Lintum finally tries the jump, he lands perfectly in the center of the puddle, 
and somehow catches the attention of a nearby priest played by Donald Pleasance. That night, his mother tries to comfort Lintum by explaining that he's better than the boys at school on account of his noble blood. In their home country, father was a count, which makes her a countess, and Lintum a viscount. The next day, when kids are teasing him, he immediately plays the noble blood card, and it goes over about as well as you'd expect. They drag him against a fence, ready to pummel him, until they're interrupted by the Donald Pleasance character, and they scatter. He offers to walk Lintum home, but Lintum shakes his head no. Merciful heavens, why not? My mother told me never to speak to strangers. But I'm not a stranger. I'm a clergyman. Would you like a caramel? So was he, like, uh, suspicious because of the noble blood thing? Like, why... It seems like he was suspicious before that because he was yeah. watching the kid when he jumped in the puddle. So what made him think, oh, this lame kid must be the child of a vampire? Maybe they're just from out of town and he's been tracking the guy around and thinks he's in this city. And he's like, I heard this is a new kid. I'm going to watch how he interacts with the other kids. Okay. The kid proceeds to spill only the most important information to this curious stranger. He can't bring anyone home, but he doesn't know why. He thinks his father escaped from somewhere in Middle Europe and may be in hiding. Oh, and in case you didn't hear it before, I'm a Viscount, which makes Daddy a Count. Is your father a nobleman? I hardly see my father. He sleeps all day and goes out at night. If a kid told me this in real life, I would be convinced his dad was a vampire. <laughs> Even if I wasn't looking for one. Lintum says that his dad sleeps in the basement and he's not allowed down there. The priest suggests waking father up early to play games when mother's not around. Three men in identical suits and bowler hats pull up and step out of their vehicle to reveal that they're carrying violin cases. At home, Mother is headed out to the store and Lintum is staying home to wake his father in secret. The priest spies on the house and watches the mother leave. He collects his men and they head to Lintum's house. Lintum is too curious to avoid going downstairs and peeks behind a curtain to find a coffin surrounded by candles with his father inside. An open coffin. Right. Yeah, I feel like... If you are a vampire and you're trying to hide it from any number of people in your family... You wouldn't direct people into the room like this? Well, I mean, just maybe don't sleep in a coffin because you have a choice. Yeah. Less candles and creepiness. It's bad fang shui. <laughs> you, you just need a box with dirt from your homeland. Yeah. Lintum rushes out of the house and crashes headlong into the priest and his men at the gate. They all move in together. Who are you? What do you want? We are the B-Squad, Sonny. The Blini, special branch concerned with blood crimes. We have sworn to eradicate the curse of vampirism from this land. The henchmen move into the cellar as the head priest explains that Lintum's father has been the most evasive vampire of his entire career. For whatever reason, they find it necessary to bring the kid downstairs to see his father slayed. Also, he says that he's been chasing him down for months. And I was like, this really doesn't seem like a vendetta like just a few months like yeah sorry the hardest thing of your whole career has only been the last couple months has everything else just been a cakewalk <laughs> yeah like you find him in a couple of days like i i thought it was gonna say like for like 15 years yeah. i've been tracking him down how much easier does it get than a kid tells you my dad only goes out at night and he sleeps downstairs <laughs> in a secret compartment he drinks the red stuff from the refrigerator <laughs> not the purple stuff sunny d that's not purple they open violin cases to retrieve a wooden stake and hammer, and just before they begin, Mother screams at the sight of what's happening. She's come home early, and she's at the top of the steps. The priest hammers the stake into the father's chest, drenching his shirt in blood, but before he's completely destroyed, Father pulls the man in and bites his neck deep enough to turn him. 
Mother points out to the henchmen that they now have to kill their boss. She's right, sir. The virus is in you. Come moonlight, you'll be on the rampage. We'll have to do our duty, sir. You can't mean that, Sergeant. <laughs> you are talking to Pickering, a departmental legend, head of the Bleeny. Why, I've staked over 2,000 vamps. You can't mean to... Suddenly, he feels a pain in his mouth as fangs protrude from his gum line. The henchmen give him the opportunity to cooperate, but he makes a run for it. They corner Pickering right away and tap a stake through his heart, killing him instantly. They put Pickering's body on a stretcher with coins over his eyes as they carry him out of the house, and we can see that the stake is stabbed through the stretcher as well. Yeah. They have some trouble keeping the gate open as they carry him away, and there's a musical joke here where the funeral march is kind of stuttering as they have to keep kicking the gate open. Oh, I, I was going to ask this earlier, but is there a joke behind them being called Blaney? I couldn't find any reference. Like I, I don't, don't know what B-Squad or Blini means. Yeah, like I'm not sure how that relates to vampires or undead or anything like that. Like I'm just like, it's like saying we're the pancake squad. Yeah, I think, <laughs> like, I think it's original mean? to this. Yeah, because <laughs> a Blini is a, is a food product. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Weirdly though, when they load them into their car, the stretcher is flat on the bottom of the car. So they must have just broken off the stake that was poking through. Lintum and Mother head back downstairs, and Father sits up in the coffin and yanks the stake out of his chest. It's a good thing. I always bear the stake-proof west. <laughs> Filled with tomato ketchup. <laughs> this moment is no more or less goofy than Sean Connery wearing a garrote-proof collar in Outland a couple weeks back. <laughs> uh, this makes a lot less sense than a garrote-proof collar, though, because at least that, like... It, 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 like you, you're not convinced that it worked because it totally like cut through his head yeah. and, and yet you don't this see still the wire him. go out yeah. the back of his neck. Yeah. Like, the stake completely disappears in his chest. I'm mm -hmm. like, how does that, how is that possible if this is preventing it from entering his chest? He has an empty cavity in his chest oh. where the stake is directed okay. into. Got it. We fade back to the next band taking the stage at the monster club. It's the band night performing a song called the stripper during the bridge of the song. A woman comes out and begins stripping in a spotlight on stage. She gets down to her underwear before she is swapped out for an animated silhouette against a glowing backdrop. And then, after we see her remove her bra and panties, she starts stripping the flesh from her bones until she's just a dancing skeleton. It looks I, really great. I love this. Yeah. Everything yeah. about this is fabulous. Like, even the transition was pretty good. Yeah, I, uh, it took me a second. I was like, wait a minute, is this a cartoon now? And yeah, then suddenly it, her skin is coming Yeah, out. unlike our, like, cartoon werewolf transformations. Oof, yeah. Those were rough. You're but talking this about one, the howling? Yeah, the howling. Yeah, this, one, this one's pretty good. And though I would argue it's a little weird that we get light through the skull for the eyes. Because oh, this should be solid <laughs> should in be the back. <laughs> That's funny. But it wouldn't look right on camera. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's a cheat I'm willing to accept. <laughs> back at RMS's table, Chetwind Hayes points out a human-looking girl in the bottom of the genealogy chart. That girl there at the bottom of the chart. Surely she's not a monster. Well, no, that's a human. A cross between a ghoul and a human being. We zoom into a very Shelley Duvall-looking Hume goo. And then we cut to a woman in a flowy gown carrying a candelabra down some steps and finding a coffin. 
When she opens the coffin, a hand pops out and grabs the woman, who screams before a director yells, cut. We see all the -the behind-the-scenes crew, including director Sam, played by Stuart Whitman. He rattles off a list of circle takes and then races off to escape the set. On his way off set, he's presented with photos of upcoming locations to approve. Sam seems disappointed because he wants somewhere that looks abandoned and remote, not somewhere so close to traffic and power stations. Sam hops into a Porsche to go scout locations on his own. He pulls off the road in the direction of a town called Loftville, painted in white on an old wooden signpost, Loftville coincidentally being an anagram of Ghoulville. He crosses a bridge, and then his car disappears into a dense fog. Wouldn't it be Ghoul-evil? No. What? I don't get it. <laughs> well, because, like, Ville, like, you're, the only part that's an anagram is the word ghoul. Yeah, Loft like, turns into ghoul. Yeah, the Ville part isn't... Ville, Ville. Yeah. It, it, it's not like in uh, the... Mars- I was going to say the Marsupials, the one of the Howling sequels, where they go to a town called Flow, and it's just wolf backwards. Oh, very clever. It's not Nilbog, but yeah, it's okay. Yeah, exactly. He pulls up to what looks like a very old abandoned village, almost like the one from Scars of Dracula that people keep passing through. He finds an old cemetery, and he pushes his way into the local inn. It's all cobwebs and dust, but he manages to get the attention of the innkeeper. The man doesn't have a phone for him to use, and Sam tries to explain he would like to rent the place to film in. A film for the cinema. He asks for the person in charge who he can get permission from, and the man says that would be the elders. They'll be here soon. Sam says he's not going to wait, but his people will be in touch, and the innkeeper corrects that he won't make it out of Ghoulville, I mean Loftville, tonight. You'll not get there tonight. Too far. Not safe though at night. You stay here. When Sam turns toward the door to return to his car, he notices 60 more people have silently shuffled into the room behind him, and they're all in gray and blue dusty clothes, with dirt smeared on their faces. When he gets to his car, it won't start, and he finds wires severed under the hood. The people swarm around him, insisting again that he spend the night here, and eventually forcing him up the stairs and into a specific room, where he eventually shoves them away and locks the door. A woman arrives to bring him a meal seconds later. It's a rabbit stew that she cooked herself. She says her name is Luna, and the innkeeper is her father. She's fascinated by his clothes. She's never been outside the village. Here, All the clothes come from boxes. It takes a few more questions before Sam realizes she's talking about grave robbing. Yeah, but, like, I question this, because does that mean somebody was buried in a nightgown? Because she's wearing a nightgown. It just seems weird. Apparently, yeah, that is weird. (laughs) I mean, presumably they were burying people very fast in this town. Maybe they didn't take a lot of care. Mm -hmm. Or maybe uh, the nightgown was underneath the clothes. Oh, maybe. Like some kind of underwear. On gathering night, all come from boxes. Clothes, wood food all from boxes sadly coffins are a non-renewable resource and their cemetery is freshly empty luna says that she is different from the other villagers because her mother was a human who was probably raped by one of the townspeople and then died in childbirth when i born she'd be put into box then dug up for great eating sam asks if he will also be killed and eaten and luna is reluctant to answer until he violently shakes a confirmation out of her He begs for her help to escape, and she points to the church and says only the two of them can survive in that building. Everyone else collapses in there. He runs through the cemetery to the church and finds a corpse in the rectory. The body seems to have died hundreds of years ago 
while reading a diary entry from the origins of the town. Reading or writing? I can't tell, actually. In brushing the dust from the page, Sam accidentally brushes the skeleton's hand to the floor. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fairly well-lit room, but Sam still holds a lighter inches from the page to help him read, and I was worried he was going to accidentally burn the magic words to save the day. We hear the voice from the past as he reads. Almighty God, hear the prayer of your miserable servant, and grant me the power to set down the unthinkable evil I have witnessed. We should have destroyed the first one, crushed it underfoot, burnt its foul carcass, and tossed the ashes to the winds as it squatted behind a tombstone and did gibber upon us. I like the word gibber. I feel like <laughs> that mostly comes from like Lovecraft stuff. Yeah. As he reads, we see illustrations of the monsters in the village cemetery. The man writing the diary seems to have stood between the angry mob with pitchforks and the creature. He was advocating for the monster and talking the people down from attacking it, even taking the ghoul home to bathe and dress in proper clothes. One night, he found the ghoul eating corpses in the cemetery. He chased it into the woods, and that night it returned with 12 other friends who eventually overran the town and kept him trapped in the church until his eventual death. Through a window, Sam notices Luna making a run for the church, but the villagers swarm her before she can make it across the graveyard. Sam runs outside with a crucifix on top of a long pole. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a character use a similar weapon against supernatural enemies? Oh, um, yeah. yeah. It was... Um, what's the name of that movie? Fear No Evil? Fear No Evil, yeah. that's correct. And before that, do you guys remember the last time? Before that? The Fog? No, more recently. But that also has a crucifix being used against someone. It's from the same director, if that's a help. Of The Fog? Of this movie. Ah. It was a Patreon review last year. Well, the, the Scars o of Dracula. Oh, I was going to say uh, the Omega Man. Doesn't he use crosses against them? Oh, he does kind yeah. of too. Okay. But remember in Scars of Dracula where he literally throws a, a spear crucifix through Dracula and then it gets struck by lightning. Oh, uh, okay. The ghouls are scared of the cross and they release Luna into the church. She says that her father will kill her for helping him, and Sam promises to take her away from this place. Suddenly, the ghouls are tossing rocks into the church, and Luna has to warn Sam that rocks can be deadly if they strike your head. <laughs> he sticks the cross out the window again, and the ghouls all back off. Luna warns Sam that if they don't leave before the elders arrive tonight, that they never will. They run, cross in hand, down the road away from the village. The ghouls are close behind them, throwing rocks all the way. Sam jams the cross into a bush to slow the creatures down, and it works momentarily until they find a way around it. Now you've wasted the one thing that you yeah, could use to scare I, them I away. I was so mad at him for doing that. Yeah. Sam and Luna find the mist beyond the bridge, and the ghouls won't follow them through it, but they're perfectly happy throwing rocks into it, and one of them connects with the back of Luna's skull. Sam tells her that he will get help, but she knows she's dying and passes peacefully. Sam flags down a police car on the road and tells them about the village. He asks for a ride to the police station, but instead they take him to Loftville. One of the cops points out the car full of elders behind them. You see, we always give the elders a police escort when they return to London. The police car disappears through the fog and is quickly swarmed with ghouls as the cops turn back to look in the back seat and reveal they have ghoulish fangs, and we dissolve back to the table at the Monster Club. Aramis asks for Chatwind Hayes' approval. After all, there was no nudity or graphic violence, and he could sell this story to many people. 
Chatwood Hayes insists that he must be going, but Aramis instead informs the club secretary that he's putting him up for membership. But I'm not a monster. Nonsense, you're the greatest monster of them all. And then we get the punchline of this whole segment. What can he do? What can he do? In the past 60 years, Humes have exterminated over 150 million of their own kind. No effort has been spared to reach this astronomical figure. And the methods that they have used must demand our unstinted admiration. He talks about guns and tanks and bombs and gases, and they deserve credit for the monstrosity of their efforts. And they talk about, he talks about being able to unleash a disease that could spread across the world. And yeah. Like, Ooh, that's, that's huddling a little too close to home. <laughs> <laughs> I never realized she was so talented. We don't like to boast. I second the proposal. Chetwind Hayes gets a round of applause, and Aramis requests the official song of the club, Welcome to the Monster Club by the Pretty Things. Aramis and Chetland Hayes both dance with ladies in the crowd as the song plays. And that's the end of our film. <laughs> oh no, Richard. Oh uh, yeah. Oh no. No. <laughs> it's fun. It's cartoony. It's for kids, really. It, is that why I liked it so much? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel that it didn't go... F- didn't push hard enough like i wanted more moments like when donald pleasant's men was like why don't you just have a lay down on the table and we'll just give you a little boop, boop. <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> I, I needed more of that um I, I was thinking a lot about movies like uh waxworks uh mm-hmm. that that i felt did this did it better which was which was funnier and serious yeah um oh, i had another one another good one. Oh, cat's eye Sure, like I still cat, haven't seen that one. But. Yeah, Cat's Eye has like another really great, like anthology. Yeah, um, that has both comedy and horror. But this, I feel, didn't do enough of either. I don't know. I I also really like both those movies, and I I like I fully admit that this one is a lot cheesier than those. But I think it's in a really fun way. You know, like it doesn't take itself seriously at all, yeah. which is. I think what makes it endearing to me where it's totally it totally knows that it's being ridiculous and it's okay with that and I like that. But uh, I, I I agree that some of the segments felt like they were taking themselves not taking themselves seriously but I feel like the Humgu story tried to be more serious. Tried to be more serious. I think the, the I think the first and and last stories were trying to be a little bit more straightforward horror and the and the middle story with Donald Pleasance is just straight comedy the whole yeah. way through. Yeah. And and I wanted I wanted one or the other, really. Okay. Yeah. Um and so and 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 I love Vincent Price. I think Vincent Price and and some of the I look at John Carradine and John Carradine just looks so done. Yeah. Um but uh and the musical interludes were <laughs> abysmal for me. I couldn't I couldn't handle it. And they're long. <laughs> they're like they full long. length songs for each one. <laughs> I but I feel like this is a hundred percent. This is the kind of movie I would put on at a party yes, just to yeah. let play. And that, I think this works really well fun. as that, like yeah. a background movie that yeah, you don't have sure. to follow the whole way through. Yeah, it's not a full story all the way through. There's yeah. some music. It's cheesy. Like anytime you sort of kind of jump in, you can. You, you don't have to know the story around it. It's 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 fun. I like yeah. it. I would have really liked. And the end credits instead of the song to do like 
an auto tune or uh, obviously this is before auto tune, but one of the when they would take the dialogue from a movie and make like a rap song or a song sure, yeah. from the dialogue. What did I just watch that they did that? Oh, the Animatrix. The Animatrix did that. Yeah. Where during all the whole credits you're hearing the dialogue. But but I just wanted to be Vincent Price explaining how all the, the Hume goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> explaining the whole the whole song is just that. Yeah. But yeah, I, I still think it's a lot of fun. My favorite story is probably the first one though, the the Shadmock whistle. Yeah. Even though like they introduced the whole thing like Shadmock whistles are terrible. Let's talk about a Shadmock story for a second so that you know exactly what's going to happen at the end of the Shadmock story yeah. the whole time. <laughs> what was your favorite story, Jess? Uh, I think my favorite one was, I don't know, it's a toss-up. But I, the, the first one and the last one I think were better than the middle one, though the middle one was the funniest. Yeah. Um, I think the, the first story, the yeah. Shadmock, is my favorite. I, I agree. The Shadmock is is my one. my favorite of the yeah. stories. Um, I just didn't like her character change where she's like, I can't hurt him. And then she goes, you're horrible. You're yeah. horrible. Yeah. I was like, yeah. what? What happened? Yeah. That's why I thought when she, when I said, who is she crying for? I thought she was crying because he was pushing her to marry him and she didn't want to because she wants to marry her boyfriend. Right. Yeah. And, and I thought, because like you said before, we cut away to this scene and we missed a whole bunch of stuff in between. And it's like, I wasn't sure what was happening. Yeah, and I kind of wanted the family members to be more involved. We had all of these masked members show up for their party, and and the masks are really kooky too here because they're like they're like clear plastic vacuum formed shapes yeah. that kind of hover over people's faces, and they're ridiculous. I wanted them to reveal more monsters underneath, and yeah, like yeah, yeah. have there be like the family's like descent of this marriage or something like that. Like, but if they have that budget, <laughs> then they would have been wearing masks in the monster club. I know, I know, but they, there was there's so much potential there. They saved so much by just <laughs> saying, "Oh, let's just put a random like Phantom of the Opera mask on everyone in this room and say that they're a monster underneath without even having to paint their eye sockets." Yeah, yeah, but still, thumbs up all around. For I me. think it's it's a thumbs up for me because it's fun. Uh, it's a thumbs down. That's for me. fair. Um, I love Letterboxd. Vincent Price though. <laughs> Vincent Price, obviously, wonderful. Uh, so I have it probably a lot higher than Richard. <laughs> I bet you um, do. I have it pretty high. It's kind of, it's it's right around the cusp where things get a little iffy in my list. I feel like it's at 28 out of 70 for the year. Uh, it's below Sphinx and above Eyewitness. Um, but like, it, you know, it's just a couple above like On the Right Track and Bust and Loose and The Burning where I'm like, things are okay, but they had potential to be a lot better. Yeah. Uh, I have it at 41 uh, which puts it below all night long and above going ape. I have it at 31. So between you guys, it's under Nighthawks and it's above Fort Apache, the Bronx. Our director here was Roy Ward Baker. Uh, this was his final film. He also directed 1972's horror anthology, The Asylum. He also directed A Night to Remember and early Hammer title, Quartermass in the Pit. We've previously reviewed another of his Hammer films, Scars of Dracula, as a Patreon exclusive. Our writers here were Edward and Valerie Abraham. I didn't recognize any of their other credits there. The novel was from R. Chetwind Hayes. He was very disappointed with the comedic elements of the film, and he thought that John Carradine was way too old to play him, which is true. He also wrote 1974's From Beyond the Grave, which was a horror anthology compiled from his works. 
The composing was done by Douglas Gamley for the Shadmok story. He's a regular composer of Amicus titles. Amicus was like a lower budget hammer. So hammer <laughs> is to Golan Globus <laughs> as Amicus is to Troma, I would say. Uh, the next composer was John Georgiatis, who did the vampire story. Uh, not much I recognized here, but he is the credited concert master of For Your Eyes Only later this season. And the third composer was Alan Hawkshaw for the Humgu story. Again, not much I recognized, but he did compose for three episodes of the Napoleon Dynamite TV series, which I have to assume was animated. I, I did like the weird electronic score for the Humgu story. Yeah. This soundtrack is kind of all over the place. It's very weird. Well, three different composers. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I think it's in the Shadmok story that we got a guest, uh, mu- uh, one of the musicians. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is played by John Williams. Yep. But it's uh, not that John Williams. It's not? No. No? Oh, no. no. I thought it was. No, it's not that John Williams. Because I was looking, I was like, well, that's the only guy with a beard. So I, could as- <laughs> I can only assume that that's John Williams. No, it was, it was not that John Williams. Wow. The editor was Peter Tanner. He edited Asylum Before This and Hamburger Hill After, among other titles. Vincent Price was Aramis for the Monster Club segment. Uh, He was cut out of Bustin' Loose a few episodes back. We discussed his appearance in The Last Man on Earth during our recent Omega Man review. He's obviously Hollywood royalty with an emphasis on the horror and sci-fi genres with leading roles like the original House of Wax, The Fly, House on Haunted Hill, He partnered with Corman for a series of Edgar Allan Poe adaptations inspired by the Hammer film's exploitation of public domain horror. Price also has a sizable comedic output for roles like Egghead from the Adam West Batman and Dr. Goldfoot in Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine and Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs. He's also a prolific voice actor, having narrated Tim Burton's short film Vincent. He's also the voice in The Mirror for Shelley Duvall's fairytale theater Snow White episode. And one of his last roles was as the inventor of the titular Edward Scissorhands in another of Tim Burton's films. This was somehow his first time playing a vampire. That seems crazy. Hmm. Yeah, I guess for Omega Man, he was the victim. Right. He so. was the only non-vampire. Yeah. <laughs> Though he had been bit by the bat that caused the virus for the entire film. John Carradine played R. Chetwin Hayes. He's a regular Hammer actor, the father of the Carradine brothers from Long Riders last year. And apparently he had scenes shot for that that were cut. Uh, we've reviewed his work in Monstroid, The Boogeyman, The Howling, and The Nesting so far. Anthony Steele played Linton Busatsky from the Monster Club segment. That means he's the adult introducing the second story. Right. This was his final feature. We saw him last year as Sir Derek Ridgely, one of the suspects from Murder at Midnight, the film within a film from The Mirror Cracked. His character's name is actually an anagram of this film's producer, so Linton Busatsky becomes Milton Subatsky. Is that a p- purely coincidental, or did he also produce this movie and they just used an anagram of his own name as the producer's name? Yes, that's oh. what they did. Okay, it's not a it's not a coincidence. Sorry, did you say that earlier and I missed it? No. Oh, I'm just okay. saying his character's name is an anagram of the film's producer. Like that's how they decided what the character would be named. Because Linton is not a real name, but oh. Milton is. Okay, sorry. It's the <laughs> oh, it's not the actor's name. No, it's oh, the character's name. Oh, okay, sorry. Name. I got really confused there for a moment. So they named the character with an anagram of the producer's name. Correct. Okay, I'm following now. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony Steele at birth, coincidentally, was an anagram <laughs> of the producer of this film. His real name is Santhony Teal. <laughs> Teals. I'm just a little slow. <laughs> Jeremy's Iron. <laughs> 
Yeah. Here, Jesse, here's a red ball to play with. All right. <laughs> Roger Sloman played the club secretary, the werewolf character. He's back later this year as Lennon in Reds. The I Lennon, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. The viewers played themselves. That was the band for the Monster Club segment. They're all in the Monster Club segment, the bands. Yeah. Well, the, that's what's interesting about this is that it's a horror anthology with a, a fourth plot of sorts. Right. Mm-hmm. Where there's a fourth through line. Yeah. I think a lot of the time, though, that there's a story built into, like... Revealing the other stories. Yeah. What's introducing the other stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the viewers were a band. They played themselves. B.A. Robertson was another performer. He played himself. And he also wrote Power Play from The Lost Boys. I see lots of soundtrack credits for the songs Wired for Sound and The Living Year. The band Night also played themselves, and the band The Pretty Things also played themselves. UB40 don't appear in the film, but they did provide a song for the soundtrack alongside the other bands. They're best known for Red Red Wine, but you can see their name in the opening credits of the film. It says UB40, even though they don't appear. Barbara Kellerman played Angela in the Shadmock story. She'll be Mrs. Cromwell in The Sea Wolves later this season. Simon Ward played George in the Shadmock story. That's the boyfriend, I'm assuming. He's the Duke of Buckingham in 73's The Three Musketeers and 74's The Four Musketeers. He's young Winston in Young Winston, and he's Zor-El, brother of Jor-El, and uncle of Superman and Supergirl. James Lawrenson played Raven in the Shadmock story. John Bolton, not that John Bolton, who illustrated the genealogy chart, was very amused to see that the filmmakers had so perfectly cast the part of the Shadmock from his drawing. Wait a minute. They they drew Wait the picture first, and then they cast no. that guy. I 100%, 100% thought that they created those drawings based on the, based on the cast nope, members. that's not what happened. What? That's pretty I don't, awesome. I don't know if I believe you. <laughs> I'm not sure if I do either, but, <laughs> but that's what they say. Jeffrey Belden played the psychiatrist in the Shadmock story. What psychiatrist? Uh, the one who's talking about the guy in the uh, padded room. Oh, okay. Uh, he was Q in the 67 Casino Royale. He's Dr. Duvall in Pink Panther Strikes Again, and he shows up in Baker's earlier film, A Night to Remember. He also appeared in director Baker's The Asylum Anthology film. Donald Pleasance played Pickering in The Vampire Story. He's Dr. Loomis in most of the Halloween movies, except for the Rob Zombie ones. He's Blofeld in You Only Live Twice and The Forger in The Great Escape. We'll see him next as the president in Escape from New York. Richard Johnson played the father in The Vampire Story. The role was first offered to Klaus Kinski, who turned it down. Oh, he would have been I great. I could see that. Yeah, <laughs> for the same reason that Christopher Lee turned it down, where it was just like, no, I'm not going to do a movie called The Monster Club. <laughs> but and, and I honestly, for maybe for both of them, there's not enough screen time. No, I agree. Like, th- this character literally isn't in anything. Like but he- Klaus Kinski was okay doing schizoid and he couldn't show up for a weekend to do this. <laughs> yeah, but honestly... I, I, literally, they could have shot him in a day. The father's in three shots for this yeah. movie. But, I mean, I could, I could see Kinski turning this down because I feel like his, his repertoire is a little bit more serious. Yeah, that's true. But... I don't see what Christopher Lee's got anything to, yeah, to say no to this he about. He could have done this. <laughs> Johnson also appears as Dr. John Markway in The Haunting, and we saw him last year as Dr. Menard, or Maynard, in Lucio Fulci's Zombie. Britt Eklund played the mother in The Vampire Story. She appears in Man with the Golden Gun, The yeah. Wicker Man, and Get Carter. She's great. Uh, I, I love her in uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. She plays Goodnight. Yeah. Somebody and she was like, in a boot. she was Bond's like secretary at the beginning, right? Like not because Money Penny is M's secretary, and 
No, well, she's um, she's an agent who. This is like the rare occasion that Bond is working with another agent. Oh, okay. Um, and she's like new and not not too skilled in what she's doing. I think in the book she's actually his secretary at mm. the office, and maybe she was sent on this trip with him. She was formerly married to Peter Sellers and then Rod Stewart. She also appeared in Director Baker's The Asylum Anthology with Jeffrey Belden. Neil McCarthy played Watson in The Vampire Story. He's back this year for Clash of the Titans and Time Bandits. Stuart Whitman played Sam in the Humgu story. Uh, Sam is the director that is trapped. He played Roy Bennett in Night of the Lepus. He's Paul Regret in The Comancheros. He returns a couple episodes from now as Father Cunningham in Demonoid. I also reviewed his performance playing Reverend James Johnson, stand-in for Jim Jones, in a minisode for Guiana Cult of the Damned, a loose retelling of the Jonestown Massacre. Leslie Dunlop played Luna. She's Nora, the nurse from Elephant Man last year, the one that, like, befriended him a little bit. Mm. Patrick McGee played the innkeeper. He's Mr. Alexander in A Clockwork Orange, the author whose wife is raped by the Droogs. He's Lord Cadigan in Chariots of Fire later this year. Last season, we had him as Ernst Mueller in Rough Cut and a priest in Hawk the Slayer. He also appears in Director Baker's The Asylum Anthology with Jeffrey Bailden and Britt Eklund. Kathy Monroe played punk dancer slash vampire twin, uncredited. Last season, she was Zuckus in Empire Strikes Back and hotel worker in The Shining. She's back this season for The Great Muppet Caper and Ragtime. Pat Roach played Great Uncle. Who's the Great Uncle? I don't remember a Great Uncle. Um, I think it's... Is that the Shadmock story? It doesn't say. It just It's uncredited. Um, I think... That's the first person that Angela dances with at the party. Oh, okay, maybe. I think he introduces him as his great uncle. He's General Kale in Willow. He's Manape slash Tothamon in Conan the Destroyer, and he makes an appearance in all three of the only Indiana Jones movies. He's Propeller Man, he's a large temple guard, and he's a Gestapo agent. <laughs> Liz Smith played a villager uncredited. She was Mrs. Plunkett in High Spirits. And Grandma Georgina in Tim Burton's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Vic Tablian played the dealer, uncredited. He's Baranka and Monkey Man in Raiders later this season. And he's also Khalifa in Sphinx earlier this season. Those are all the credits I had for this one. Uh, I just wanted to bring up, because uh, it caught my eye, the production designer, Tony Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> that Tony Curtis? No, just oh. much, much like the John Williams was okay. not John Williams, apparently. Uh, this is not that Tony Curtis. But Tony Curtis did do the art direction for Krull. And so Wait, never... that Tony Curtis did? Yeah. Uh, so never <laughs> or this chance. Tony Curtis. This did. Tony Curtis okay. from this film did the art direction for Krull. I could see hints of Krull in this. That's not true. I think that's everything for the Monster Club. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe, please. Subscribe to us. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Polyester, which IMDb describes like so. A suburban housewife's world falls apart when she finds that her pornographer husband is serially unfaithful to her, her daughter is pregnant, and her son is suspected of being a foot fetishist who is breaking local women's feet. We leave you now with a trailer for Polyester.
quite blunt with you, Cuddles. I think my marriage is on the wrong. You'll never get a penny out of me, you fat hunk of cellulite. Be ready for the back seat in a minute. I quit school today, and I'm gonna get me a job as a go-go girl. <laughs> I cannot take another heartbreak. I just cannot take it. Anybody home? Oh God! See the houses. But I don't even know your name. It's Todd, honey. Todd. Hot tomorrow. Ooh, I got a date with an angel. <clears throat> Read my lips. I love you. I love you too, my darling. Then let's make love, you sweet little thing. French provincial. They do their best to stay neutral and expressionless.